Hello and welcome back to The Best Podcast. Today I'm very excited to be talking to my friend from across the sea, Ryan Luchuk. He's based in Toronto, Canada, and we've known each other for umpteen years. Must be at least 10, Ryan. I think it's longer than that, yeah. Yeah, it probably is because time just flies. And we started together in speech level singing, SLS, and then sort of found ourselves outside of that arena and and finding our own pathway. Sometimes we crossed and sometimes we went off in different directions and I'm very excited to catch up with Ryan today, which is one of the reasons I do the podcast so I can catch up with my mates <laughs> uh, <laughs> and find out what he's been doing. So welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thank you. It's always nice to be chatting to you. So before we um, head off, it would be great for you to talk a little bit about your journey prior to teaching what you were doing and was singing something that you were doing on a regular basis? Did you have ambitions there to be a, an artist or what was your story? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I'll try to give a, a more in-depth version of what I usually give. Um, it's, yeah, I was I, pretty stereotypical for, for me, my story. I think I absolutely wanted to be an artist and I was singing from a really, really young age. Um, there's videos of me at the age of three, just hammering away on a guitar and, and uh, singing Beatles tunes. And um, I knew, I was lucky to know that this is what I wanted to do from very young. But I found that as I went along, that singing, though I guess at this point in my life, I can accept that I was relatively gifted musically, but the singing did not come so easily. And I had no idea. I just assumed that I could sing whatever I wanted because I loved it. And uh, once I joined my first bands around the age of 11 and 12, uh, it wasn't so easy. And I started to lose my voice very, very quickly. And I knew nothing. Um, and for whatever reason, there was nobody around in my orbit to, to really give me advice on it. So I just kind of went for it. And I assumed that if I tried harder, it would get better. If I can't hit this note, I'll just try harder and keep doing it. And eventually I'll have that ability. And of course, as we know, it does not work that way. So by the time I was 13 or 14, I started losing my voice regularly. And pretty much every time I would do a gig and I, I played it in multiple bands at the time, I was usually the lead singer, purely out of enthusiasm more than talent, I think, looking back on it. But um, yeah, it would, um, I'd be halfway through the first set and have already lost a considerable amount of flexibility and, and stability in, in my performance. And then it would take, I mean, by the end of this stage of my life, it would take me close to a week to recover vocally. Like I was kicking the shit out of my voice <laughs> and I was young enough to not know any better and to withstand the abuse. And, and, uh, but even at that age, I started to figure out, okay, something's wrong here. And I remember a friend of mine going for a singing lesson and, and said that he had, it was a good lesson. So I, I went to see this teacher and I only ended up taking one lesson, but it was enough for me to learn that there was something really wrong here. And then right around that time, somebody exposed me to Seth Riggs' book, um, Singing for the Stars. And 
I was kind of fortunate that that was um, the first thing I ever saw when it came to vocal development, um, because it meant that as I went along and I, I got more ambitious about seeking out somebody who could help me, that I looked for somebody who was familiar with, uh, let's just say, the kind of methodology that um, was encouraging um, the ability to, you know, to transition through these different registers and all this mysterious stuff. And um, yeah, so it got to the point where I, I, I ended up getting Seth's book. I worked on it for a few years by myself. Um, for whatever reason, my personality is such that when I decide to go for something, I take it way too far. And I actually quit singing and just focused on fixing my voice, which I would not recommend to anybody. Um, but it did mean that I was uh, able to eliminate a lot of tension in my voice, even though that book, like I think the vast majority of vocal books are only so helpful uh, in the real world. But I was able to accomplish that. And uh, then I found, eventually I found a couple people that could help me. And one of them was Tamara Beatty. And the other one was Dave Stroud. So by this time, I'm about um, 17, 18. Mm. So I have a couple of questions here. How much do you think maybe um, puberty and the chain, vocal changes might have been affecting your loss of voice? Do you think that had any impact? Well, it was definitely responsible for uh, the lack of flexibility. I mean, as, as we, we know, right, singing through that period is really, really tricky for young men. And I just went through that period with my head down, absolutely trying to force what I wanted out of my voice. So for sure, it was responsible for a lot of it. Yeah, without, without a doubt. If I had if I had gotten, if I was less interested until later, perhaps things wouldn't have been so dramatic. Mm -hmm. And the other question is, can you expand a little bit more about why you don't believe it was the right thing for you to totally give up singing when you did? Uh, I just think psychologically, like I, it, it is a, with, if somebody comes in to see me and their voice is pretty wrecked, it has to be a pretty extreme case before I'll encourage them to not be singing songs, at least in some sort of limited capacity. Mm. Um, and that's exactly what I did. <laughs> I stopped performing and I, you know, I went through the, I, I, I put myself through hell for three years and it, it wasn't really necessary to be that extreme, but, um, Having, but having said that, I mean, I think we all have students where if we could get them to stop doing that thing that is causing them to have excessive tension for a while, uh, I think we'd be happy. And so there were definitely some benefits to it. And it meant that once I met Dave and, and started working with somebody, that I was really ready to make big improvements quickly. What then took you towards teaching at what point did you decide actually you weren't going to continue down the artist route and you're going to focus on teaching or did you think you were going to do both? Um, no, I never thought I was going to teach. I, uh, you know, Dave in those days, they were trying to build up a whole group and that was probably around a similar time that he, he met you, I'm guessing. And so they were just l trying to see, you know, look for the keeners and, and see if they would teach. So he did ask me, and I, I was 18 or 19 and I just went, nah, there's, there's no way I'm doing that. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a star. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but what happened is, is I did get to the point with my voice where I 
could survive, uh, you know, three hours of singing and, and I was ready. And, and I just hit a point where enough's enough. I gotta, I gotta get out and, and start moving towards my goal, uh, in a more tangible way. So I moved to Toronto. I was at the time I was living in Calgary, which is all across, all the way across the country. And I had started performing a bit, but for whatever reason, my style of music, it didn't, it wasn't moving people as much in Calgary as I thought it, it might somewhere else. And my sister had moved to Toronto, which is kind of the place to be in Canada if you, if you want to you know, make it in music. And so I moved out to Toronto. And uh, fortunately, within three months, I was making a living singing and playing. I got extraordinarily lucky and landed a residency in a piano bar. And so I was doing that for a long time while also putting out my own music and kind of building these things concurrently. And uh, at the time, I'd stopped my voice training because I couldn't afford it. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, just kept um, making money and surviving on music, which is not the easiest thing in the world to do. And I, after a while, I kind of hit a wall of just in terms of where my career was at and just also feeling like um, I would prefer to not have to sing 100% for my supper. Sometimes when you, when you rely on, you know, all your income is made by, by um, performing, you have to perform in a lot of settings that are not ideal. And uh, in order to make a, a you know, de decent living, I had to play solo a lot, which isn't really all that much fun for me personally. And, uh, you know, I just, I just got sick of doing covers. So that was, to be honest, the, the uh, initial motivation was 100% money. And just feeling like, okay, I, I need, I don't want to be stuck playing bars in, in 15, 20 years. And some of my colleagues were still doing that. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's what they want to do. I mean, it's an amazing way to to um, have so much music in your life and be paid for it. But I, I just didn't want that. So uh, then, then I said, uh, okay, let's, uh, let's give this a shot. It's probably time. And by this time I had been studying for eight or nine years. And uh, once I did start teaching, I found that I just absolutely loved it. And in some ways I, I prefer it to performing. I, I, I need both, but to me, teaching is, um, seeing people at their best. You know, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things of, of the human spirit is when they're trying to better themselves, when we try to move beyond where we're at. It's such a genuine, earnest place, and I love helping people along that journey. So when you first started, what, uh, what were your challenges? Well, some of it was, I mean, I was really, really lucky. I... I I lived in a house where my landlady couldn't have been more encouraging of this. And I realize now that, I mean, that was an unbelievable stroke of luck that I didn't have to rent a space. I could teach out of my place. Um, so challenges in the beginning. I mean, I think for most teachers, it's going to be seeing beyond yourself. And it took a, it took a while to, here beyond, let's say, somebody's natural gift. 
I can distinctly remember hearing somebody run some scales and they just sounded so good that I couldn't hear that there was anything that maybe needed any work. So that was, that was difficult in the beginning. And just, just seeing beyond your own perception, your own reality as a teacher and learning that, okay, um, this person isn't going through what I'm going through and the ability to sense what, what they need the most that may be something that you've never, ever needed to work on. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, what, um, can you remember any particular light bulb moments where you just went, oh, my gosh, and that's totally changed my understanding of the voice or how to teach or what to teach? What kind of things stuck in your mind? I'll try to think of some specific ones. I mean, I do have memories because in those days I would I would travel to L.A. a lot and I would work with, with Dave and I would just go in there and say, okay, just I'm going to book five hours and just fill them with students and let's just work. And it was extremely daunting and, and intimidating, but I, I, I can distinctly remember coming back from one of those trips and feeling that it was like the entire paradigm had shifted, not just in terms of my understanding of the voice, but it seemed that people around me were treating me it's like if you dye your hair or something and, and everyone's treating you differently, you know, <laughs> and that's what, that's what it was. Like it, um, the world had just changed. I'll try and think of some, something really, really specific in terms of, uh, the technical side, but, um, but what was it about that trip then that shifted your paradigm? Huh. It's so hard to remember. <laughs> It's so hard to remember like the exact specifics of, of what it was. Um, I mean, I can remember, um, for example, somebody running like a five-tone ah uh, and seemingly killing it um, and then running into problems far beyond where somebody else or where the typical singer would, would run into issues. And I can distinctly remember that as a kind of a light bulb moment is, oh, okay, <laughs> don't assume that we're all the same. And I think it's been a, if I can think about my technical understanding of the voice, it's been more and more and more moving away from these boxes and labels that we like to, to put on the voice and, and are probably somewhat necessary and a key to understanding, but uh, more and more and more you realize that that everybody is so so different mm. in not only what's technically happening in their voice, but then their ability to perceive um, and and move beyond it. Mm. Sorry, I know that's really vague. <laughs> I, I I really like that, you know, because I think I too was thinking more about boxes. There were mm -hmm. several boxes uh, because that was the way we were trained, wasn't it, through the methodology we learned. And since I moved away from that idea of slotting somebody into one of those four boxes of, like, are they pulling chest, are they in the mix, are they f flipping, I can't remember what they are, or are they... Um, too, uh, too light. Yeah, too light. Yeah. So once... What did we call that? I can't remember. No <laughs> chest. No chest. Was it? No, no chest, right? Yeah. yeah. So I thought, I think as a beginner, 
that was great to be able to have those sort of categories to think about because most people will fit into one of those boxes. I but totally agree. Yeah. Now I go, okay, so fundamentally that's the box that they're in, but why are they doing that? You know, what's constituting that? Is it a habit? Is it a mental approach? Is it a physiological thing? Is it a technical thing? Is it a choice? You know, so I agree um, that, that, you know, it is far more beyond those boxes, but certainly as a starting point, though, those categories really help me to quickly help people that had problems that I didn't have. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So when you started to understand that there was more of a science behind it, so um, hopefully people have gone to watch your videos on vocal science one and two, which are really kind of introducing formants and harmonics and how that, that works in singing and then how to interpret it and how to hear it. Where are you at now? Because that was several years ago. So has anything changed in the way that you approach the voice from a scientific point of view? Do you think it's been helpful to you? Do you think it hindered you? Uh, well, I, it was incredibly helpful. Um, I, I hit a bit of a wall with the science just in terms of feeling like where, what is the best use of my time now? And where am I going to get the most bang for my buck in advancing my teaching? Um, and that's not the science. That's just me as somebody who teaches 35 hours a week, which I don't necessarily recommend <laughs> to everybody. Um, but I, 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 one of my biggest gifts as a teacher is the ability to do it for very long periods of time. Um, but anyway, th that aside, yeah, the, 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 the initial um, discovery and study of the science was absolutely revolutionary for me. Um, and what it did was help to fill in the gaps that were missing from our training. And I still think, you know, I mean, sometimes I'll hear people knock the work that we were doing, you know, with, with speech level singing. And now I'm not prepared to criticize it particularly because I still think that 75, 80% of what I do is exactly the same as what I was, was doing before I ever studied voice science. I think that the difference is now is, is just in knowing the application, knowing why I'm picking and choosing a particular exercise with considerably more detail. And the, the biggest, the, the biggest, I guess, change for me is, is, was, was understanding that you're not necessarily going to build the voice in this linear fashion. You're not necessarily going to build the top end from, extremely light into as strong as we want it to be uh, gradually. And in fact, it can happen along two tracks where people can, if we want to use the term belt very loosely, but people can belt very high and then have an extremely weak head voice and almost nothing in between and understanding why that can happen and learning how to take advantage of that in, in helping them grow. So, um, and that totally came from the science. So it's been, inc it's been incredibly helpful. I still study science with, um, with Ingo Tietze, but I did kind of hit a point where even in terms of my career, things were, a door was sort of opening for me that I could be this sort of science interpreter to the vocal world. And I 
kind of realized that I didn't want to do that. It's, it's, it's all about me. It's nothing about um, the information or I just, I just didn't want to be that guy. Um, Cause I just didn't really feel comfortable explaining something that I felt that I barely understood myself. Um, but then it brings up a really good question. Is, is there too much science in teaching? Can that be a thing? And I, I absolutely feel it can be. So I don't, I don't actively use it that much. It's helped me a lot in my explanations. And I know that my students generally basically love that. They love a, you know, fact base, whatever that is, but as much as you can be factual and functional based in your explanations, people really respond to that. And I've had many people as a result of the science videos that I've done, um, seek me out and say, I'm looking for somebody who can explain it the way you do. So in that sense, it's been incredibly helpful. And, um, I just don't feel as, you know, I think we all feel lost at times as a teacher and I don't think that ever goes away or ever should go away, but uh, it's, um, it's really gotten rid of a lot of the confusion. There were a lot of things that we were doing before the science that worked, but we really couldn't, if we were honest with ourselves, explain why they were working. Mm. Or if that was the most efficient way. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So it's really helped with that. So yeah, the science has been great. These days I'm, I'm looking for ways of, uh, ways of moving forward um, as quickly as possible. So I, I just finished a course in myofascial release which I'm incredibly excited about. Um, and I've also been studying um, nonviolent communication, which I don't know if you've looked into any of that stuff, which is absolutely fascinating. And, and that comes from doing couples therapy, but uh, it's so applicable to everybody with everything they do. And there's so many relationships that we've all had that have gone south. And when you start to study nonviolent communication, you realize that, so much of it is in how we talk to each other and ways that, it, you know, I mean, I'm lucky to have an extremely good relationship with my parents and my siblings, but we, I was, we, we talk to each other all the time this way without realizing it and without meaning to hurt each other. Um, and so people get defensive or people feel on edge uh, because of the language. And so that's, that's another area, you know, I'm kind of going off in a tangent here, but. Do you communicate differently with your students as a result? Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm learning that, that one of my weaknesses is empathy. Uh, not in the sense that I don't care, but the ability to express and give empathy to people and listen to them on a much deeper level. And I think we as teachers, our default is to want to fix everything. But uh, I was working with a therapist who said to me, you know, your real job is hearing people. And I thought, wow, you know, that was, that was a bit of a light bulb that if, cause I sometimes wonder is why am I successful at this? It's, you know, we all have these moments of insecurity. Why me? Why, why do people want to work with me? Um, but uh, that was kind of a, a huge insight into that. And so that's an area I want to develop and, and grow with. So that if somebody comes to me and they're, whether they're just complaining about their day or they're complaining about, or they're, I shouldn't say complaining, they're expressing, you know, what they're feeling that we don't instantly jump to, okay, well, here's an exercise that'll fix that up for you. See you later. And giving people more time and really hearing them, you know, um, that's been 
I think it's been I think it's been quite helpful because for the first time in my life I've I've been able to cut my advertising in half and and my rates are higher than they've ever been so there's something happening that I maybe I, I would be difficult to measure but something's going right when it comes to that stuff. Mm. So could you give an example then of how your approach has changed like how you might have done it before to how you would do it now? Well, it's mostly trying trying to fix things instantly, offering people solutions, um, somewhat judgmental solutions, as opposed to really talking through things, expressing a lot more empathy. Um, I had a student in last week uh, who had had um, a close relative pass away. Well, the second half of the lesson was basically us talking about loss. And I think in the past, I would have felt like, well, that's, uh, that's not the right thing to do. They're paying for a singing lesson. But uh, singing is, is so holistic that if I, can, if I can be somebody that helps them uh, grieve and move on faster, then that's going to help their singing more than an extra 10 minutes of exercises. Right. Um, So that's the direction I'm I'm moving in more and more. Mm -hmm. I guess for me, coming from a nursing background, I naturally do that anyway. Mm -hmm. Though I do know that certainly um, in the early days of my teaching, I thought I was there just to fix the voice. And I I know that I would consciously avert any discussion around other things. Sure. Yeah. I, don't, I don't quite know where that changed. I think part of it was when I left SLS and I didn't feel such pressure to be teaching a particular type of lesson. Um, but I certainly remember giving myself permission to go, okay, sometimes it's all right to delve into this because it might have an impact on why they're getting tension when they're singing that yeah. note. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, the key is the line. And, I mean, we've all have had or know of people who've had the experience of, of paying a lot of money for a voice lesson and walking out of there with a quarter of the time actually spent singing. And so um, I agree with, with you that it's, we don't want this to be a, a, uh, a thing that happens too often, mm. but at the same time, yeah, for the right person at the right time, it's extremely valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you were saying, it gives you that extra dimension that the average teacher may not have Mm -hmm. and also you know at the end of the day I feel as teachers part of our role is to actually be good at communication good at listening because that's what we have to do you know not only listening from a musical point of view but listening you know what someone's saying and how they're saying it and how's that Mm -hmm. impacting on them as as a human being and then as a performer well, that brings up that brings up a whole other area that uh, we haven't really touched on in terms of my growth. Um, watching, you know, people like yourself or Wendy, and I've uh, I'm much more about connection to the lyric and, and the performance uh, than I used to be, considerably more. And ten years ago, it was technique, technique, technique. Oh, great! You can hit the note! Hooray! And, uh, of course, the the thing that the audience actually cares about (laughs) far more than any other tangible thing is, is what that performer is making them feel. 
And so, yeah, if, if developing that awareness as a teacher and, and I think it comes from time and experience and, and our own comfort level where we're, we're, we don't, we don't need to impress our students after a while. Um, and we're much more about them than us over time. And I think that there's no way to get to that place other than, other than putting in the hours. So can you give a rundown on how your studio operates, what your focus is, you know, what do you think your studio's kind of USP is? Sure. Um, well, I teach out of my house. So, I mean, as a, what we offer that's different. I mean, I'm fortunate that I've, I've spent so many years as a professional musician. So I'm, I'm lucky to be able to incorporate a lot of those things, which I know not every voice teacher has and, and people shouldn't feel that they don't have an incredible amount of offer uh, to um, amount to offer if they don't have that. But that's been very helpful to me. We run a lot of performance opportunities that because of my experience, I can be extremely hands-on with. So we do a lot of performance workshops and, and I, I, I get to be the music director, which means that I'm right there on stage with them. So I can offer vocal uh, advice at the same time as we're, we're helping them perform. That's one of the things that's been the key to our success. Uh, and we do offer uh, as many side classes as we can. We've done songwriting and a mo much more in-depth stage performance. And uh, we just offer all of that out of the house with the exception of venues that uh, we need to rent for the, the performances themselves. We just do everything in-house. Um, beyond that, honestly, I, th I, th I think that my biggest value to people, I, I see myself as much as I enjoy working with professionals and, and artists, and, and I, I do, but I really enjoy working with people who've never sung before. And particularly people who've been told, and this is way too common, unfortunately, been, been told by somebody in their lives that please don't sing, uh, you know, I mean, can you imagine, and I'm, I know you've heard this story thousands of times as well. Can you imagine somebody telling a, a, a seven or eight year old, please just mouth the words in our, in our fucking school choir please just mouth the words because you can't sing. And that story is so common. That's happened to so many people. And a lot of times they, they don't decide to change that feeling or that they don't decide to address it or face it until they're in their thirties or forties. And, you know, if you believe that we're only here once, my God, to not be able to sing and enjoy that part of life. So, if, if you ask me what I feel I have to offer the world, it's that. Mm. And I love working with those people. So tell me, break that down, um, because I often get that question and it's always, I know that there are teachers out there who want to know how can they help someone, A, who has already got that fear that they can't sing or they, you know, they, the desire but they worry that they can't, and, and mm -hmm. B, maybe is challenged when it comes, I, I often call it pitch disorientation because obviously if you've been cut off from that then mm -hmm. your ears and, and your brain are not actually learning how to 
pitched and instruments or how to pitch in a sequential way. And I, I sort of always say to people, I don't really believe that unless you've got some sort of hearing problem that you're tone deaf, but, I, mm-hmm. you know, you may be pitch disorientated. So what do you do when a student comes in? What's kind of the first thing that you do when they come in under these conditions? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, you, you have to, where, wherever they are, you have to meet them there. And you have to change your, I don't want to say expectations, but you have to, to modify what you're used to seeing in terms of results. And that's incredibly important because I, I've, I have worked with a lot of teachers who are working with somebody who is, yeah, whether it's pitched, I like the way you say that, pitched is oriented. I'm going to steal that. That's good. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> well, because what I love about it is that there's, there's no, um, there's no fault or blame assigned in that terminology, right? I'm disorientated. Well, why? Well, because I'd never had the opportunity to, or whatever, right? Um, and that's what it is. I mean, pretty much all the time, if you ask them if they were sung to as children, the answer is no. And the parents don't even have to be talented singers, but for kids to get that perception, I mean, babies are like these supercomputers, right? So if we're not fortunate enough to have some sort of music, some sort of exposure in the early years of our lives, it's, it, it's a miracle when someone comes in and, and says they've never sang before, never been sung to, and can sing in tune. I mean, that does happen, but that's, they're so fortunate when that happens, right? So it's meeting them where they are. You do a lot more singing in the lesson. You do a lot more demonstration because... People always will respond best to the human voice. Just playing something for somebody on a piano, if they are pitched uh, disorientated, they won't necessarily be able to pick it up. And then the other important thing is to work very close to their speaking range in the beginning. Because almost everyone who thinks they're tone deaf, it's because they're trying to do things that are extremely difficult for them. And, you know, for me, I always relate it to my uh, ability or lack of ability to dance. I'm a horrible dancer. Um, in fact, my best friend came up to me at my wedding and said, <laughs> uh, wow, man, for such a good musician, you are a horrible dancer. And it, it's like a running joke. But if I was to, if I was to try and, and match a Michael Jackson uh, choreography, I, I mean, I would, I would, I, I mean, you can imagine the results. So somebody would have to take me and show me the simplest step and be satisfied when I can do that. And it's the same thing for somebody who is, is having difficulty with pitch. But it's amazing how quickly the improvements can happen. Sometimes there's an extreme lack of flexibility in the voice itself because just the ability to use the entire range has just atrophied. Or it's really never been used. Or well, it's been discouraged from being used. As uh, you know, Ingo does that great presentation about how speech is not the ideal um, exercise for the larynx. So somebody who's been told to, sh- to not sing at a very young age has never used it. So we can't expect them to have much coordination beyond where they speak. But usually if you work in that speaking range, they can be surprisingly accurate. So what, what kind I- of exercises do you give them? Uh, I'll start as simple as just like a one three one. And um, I'll just pick whatever vocal sound. Sometimes it's just at random. Sometimes it's if there's something I want to slightly encourage in their voice, so I'll, 
I'll pick a specific vocal sound, but we'll just start with, okay, ba, ba, ba. And if they can do it, then I'm, I, and I'm singing everything to them and they're repeating it back. Right. And do you play the piano as well? Yeah, you, I'll play the piano at the same time as I'm doing that. Yeah. So um, do you do any kind of oral development? Like is this pitch lower, higher? Do you do those kind of things, like oral skills? Sometimes. I mean, sometimes I don't want to put people under the pressure of, of having something that they can potentially in their own mind fail at. Um, so if I can, wherever I can get success, I will. Um, but usually I try to keep them doing something rather than just purely training the ear because to me, if you're training the voice, you are training the ear. So I don't feel a need to do like inter interval training separately, but I, I will encourage people to do it if they're, if they're really, really keen about it and they want to improve as quickly as possible. Also, well, there's a couple of things. So one of them is that I heard somewhere, but I haven't really delved into it, that the pentatonic scale is a very easy scale for people to learn. Hmm. Of a, a natural scale that people can gravitate to. And then the other one was um, I know Ian Davidson, who's also a bass trainer, he did his masters on people who were exactly in this situation that you were talking about. And he yeah. found that getting them to vocalize through the straw was really um, a useful step into giving them the confidence that they could actually vocalize on pitch have you used a straw for that yeah well I, I can't say that I've noticed it's it's any better in terms of the pitch matching than um than the other exercise that all exercises that I'll use um but speaking of Ian I mean he uh I, I talked to him about this and one of the things that does that can absolutely help as well is if you can get them to hear themselves so whether they they sing through a mic, if you have that set up in your studio, or I can't remember the name of the expensive version of the, um, but the, the the poor man's version is the earphones. Yes, that's right, the earphones. Yeah, <laughs> which it, I feel honestly works just as well. Right. And when people can hear themselves, it, that does help sometimes, but you always have to keep an eye on them because you don't want them to start listening to themselves more than listening to what they're trying to sing with but uh yeah all those things can definitely help with perception the other thing that that we should talk about is um rhythm how to develop rhythm in somebody who is really really struggling and this is an area that i think all of us as a community have to do so much more work with because at the end of the day if i had to if i had to choose uh one musical skill that people can't get away with being weak in its rhythm. Yeah. I was having and, that discussion just an hour ago with somebody yeah. who she's a singer and also works on a boat hiring singers. Mm -hmm. And she said she's been so shocked at how many musicians, not just singers, um, are really bad with, with time and rhythm. Mm. Um, yeah. You think dropping bars, coming into the wrong place. Uh, just yeah, she she was she said because mostly her exposure was through you know she hangs out with musicians who yeah. are sort of similar level to her, mm -hmm. but now she's seeing musicians of all different levels coming into the um, into the job, 
And it's, of course, the agency is sending them and the agency probably don't know anything about musicianship anyway. That's it. Um, yeah, well, you know, if there's one thing I could go back to my younger self um, as, a, as a developing musician, uh, it would be, I would tell myself that. Work harder and harder and harder on your time. And, and I feel I'm fortunate to have pretty good time, but I, I work on my time every single day. Um, I play with a metronome or I, I, I play along with artists who have incredible feel just as a way of, of continuously trying to grow that. Because you can never be too good at time. Now, for the singer or the, the aspiring singer who really struggles with time, I think there's a major void in our industry. Because, in my opinion, counting doesn't work. It can be a way of explaining what something is. And if somebody has decent time already, it, then it can work. But for the person who's lost on rhythm, attempting to get them to count something, um, at least I've, and I've, I've talked to a, a student of mine who did his thesis on how the brain learns. According to him, um, it involves a different part of the brain. So we're now really confusing the system, adding numbers and accounting system to something that needs to be felt. But how do you get somebody to feel something if they can't feel it? And the challenging thing is that singers and all musicians have to actually have two things going at once. They have to have the pulse of the song and whatever the rhythm of the melody is. And those things have to be going along concurrently and accurately. So how do you, and, and we've been working on a whole system to address this. Uh, that at some point I'll, I'll do something with, but it's something I use a lot in my studio. And he was a huge help for me because he did his thesis on how the brain learns. He's not afraid to tell me when he thinks what I'm doing isn't working. Even though we dread working with students like that sometimes, it's like the best thing for us, right? Indeed. The ones and those awkward questions that are way more yeah. intelligent than you feel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and on top of that, he really struggles with rhythm. Right. So he's been an amazing student for my growth because the two of us kind of came up with this whole system. Wow. And so uh, I'll give you a real quick, like a, the one minute version of it. And it's basically getting people to fill in the gaps of rhythm with some sort of syllable. So he said, what he equated it to, he says, you know, zero... Zero is only zero because we decided to call it something. The reality is the number zero is nothing. But because we call it something, it allows us to wrap our head around it. So if we start to do the same thing with rhythm, we can begin to fill in those gaps. And so we've been able to train people to do some pretty complex rhythms by having them clap just the quarter notes and then fill in it. And it's, it's mm or pa. So pa is the rhythm that you eventually want to sing. Mm is the space of rest. So the simplest version of this, and, and this, this can be very difficult for somebody who really struggles with rhythm, is just getting somebody to do this. Mm pa, mm pa, mm pa, mm pa, mm pa, mm pa. But to have them say mm pa is not so difficult. Then what you do is you gradually reduce that mm, you can have them whisper it, and eventually they're not doing it at all. Pa, pa. Pa, pa. Now, for the, the, for the right student, that is extremely difficult and a major accomplishment for them to separate 
what the beat is doing from what their voice is doing. And then as you can imagine, you just build on top of that and, and they get cons more and more and more complex. By the time you get into 16th notes, um, can be doing some pretty, pretty complicated things and, and not, not realize they're doing it. So you move past the, the conscious part of the brain that wants to count it. Now, Did you look into, I think it's the off or the Kadai method where they use sounds um, like tiki taka. No, I've, I haven't heard of that. Oh, right. So there's definitely, um, uh, when I was learning jazz, you know, mm -hmm. those rhythms are quite problematic. Not because not only you've got very difficult rhythms and you've got high speeds of tempos, but also everything's offbeat, you know, it's yep. not on the onbeat. And, uh, and then you've got to swing it. And, um, yeah, so sounds were how I learned. Yeah, so if I was learning a triplet, it would, um, there would be a particular, so we used to use do and bar and okay. dooley bar. So for a, a triplet was dooley bar, dooley bar, dooley bar, dooley bar. Yeah. Uh, but the or for the Kadai, because I can't remember, it's a long time since I looked into them, they use things like ta-ta and tiki-ta. So the actual sound itself is either short or long, mm -hmm. uh, depending on where you are. So it would be, for quarter notes, would be ta-ta-ta-ta. And I think it's ta-ka-ta-ka-ta-ka-ta-ka uh, for quavers or what are they called? Eighth notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I totally agree that this is an area that certainly singing teachers don't really focus on unless they come from a uh, more musical background um, mm -hmm. or have played, played instruments. And it's probably something that we need to address and help our teachers understand, you know, because sometimes they're not great at it themselves. Well, because it's, uh, well, for most of them, it, they this comes so naturally to them that the idea of breaking it down yeah you instantly go back to the one e and a one e it sounds like the system you're talking about which i've i haven't been exposed to is would be considerably better because because there's no there isn't counting in it right um always the tricky thing and what i like about what we're doing and maybe maybe it's in that system too is how do you work the rest in there well actually I think that's what's missing, but I don't know enough about those particular okay. methodologies to know what happens in rests. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the other thing too that I remember really helped me was actually uh, physical. So having a physical understanding of, well, this is the on-beat, that's the off-beat, mm. um, or swinging and going, that's one, that's two, or that's one, that's and, or my foot. Yeah. The front is that you know, so making it actually a kinesthetic experience, so that mm -hmm. I'm not thinking one or two or three. Yeah. I'm thinking where in the beat am I? And I I know certainly with jazz, it took quite a long time. It probably took me about I reckon two or three years of really. I went and did drums as well, not because oh. I wanted to be a drummer, but because yeah. I wanted to understand how the feels a lot better and someone suggested that actually learning the drums would really help with that and learning how to count in as well because obviously in jazz you have to count in in lots of different styles you know it could yep. be in 12-8 it could be 6-8 it could be a bossa it could be a 
slow ballad, it could be a, an up-tempo swing or a medium swing and how do you count that in? Yeah. So I have um, a couple of other questions to ask around um, your events that you put on because um, sometimes teachers want to but they don't quite know where to start. So what have you learned from the events that you put on? What's, what are some shortcuts or some things to avoid or, you know, things that really work well that you would advise anyone who's thinking about putting on an event? Um, I got to speak carefully on these because I, I'm, I'm lucky that because I get to be play in the band and be the music director, that it saves me a lot of money and makes it, makes it a lot easier for me. Um, so feel free to stop me anytime where you, if I say something, you think, well, okay, that's not realistic for somebody who's, who's just starting out getting them going. I mean, first things first, I would, I think every single teacher should be trying to put something like this on. People really, really need the motivation that comes along with having an upcoming performance. I mean, I have some students who have been with me over a decade and never practice. And it's kind of a running joke, um, but they're still with me because of the workshops. So um, everyone should try and do some variation of them. I, in the beginning, it, you know, try and start small. If you can find one musician, and I do think it's crucial that you do them live. I really do. I know that um, now if somebody is, has figured out a way to have good success uh, doing tracks, then I think that's fantastic. But I've, a lot of teachers have mentioned to me over the years that they've struggled putting these events on. And my first question is always, do you have live musicians? And pretty much always, if, if they're struggling, it, the answer is no. Um, so that will help people sign up. And in, at least in our market, people, this is, this is worth a fair amount to them. So I don't consider it a money-making thing when I do it. My goal is always just to, to break even. And in the beginning, I, I think I even lost some money, but it didn't matter because you made it so much up on people taking more lessons and the benefit for you as a, um, a teacher to develop a community. People meet each other and they become friends. And I mean, I've, we've had a, is it one or two? <laughs> well, we had our first sort of marriage from my student base uh, last year and they met at one of the workshops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a nice little first, right? But, um, so yeah, start, if you can find a live musician, if, if you're fortunate enough to find somebody who can play guitar and piano, that would be ideal. And just start with one. Uh, if you're, if hiring a band is a little bit too uh, intimidating, start with one. And other little things that we've done, I mean, at our workshops, they get some performance coaching on the day of. They get, and they, they have a panel that comes out to give them feedback. And this is only written feedback. I, I refuse to, to give a panelist a mic. Um, that's not something that I've seen work very well at, at other people's events. Only because, unfortunately, there's always one bad apple. And... You bring in a panelist and somebody gets a mic and they decide that uh, they're going to tell this singer exactly what they need to be doing. And uh, 
it's just a, a bad vibe for everybody. So we uh, just have them right. Um, other little things that have really helped to those events. We have a rehearsal the week before with the band. Um, people really like that. Um, even something as, as seeming uh, minutia as limiting the song length to four minutes. So if your song is over four minutes, we have to edit it down. And I think it was something like seven or eight years of running these events. And a drummer that we had hired suggested, you know, why don't you limit the song length? And it made a huge difference. And now these things run like clockwork, but uh, we've been doing them a long time. We've made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. So do you charge? I mean, who does anyone pay anything? What's, what's the we just, yeah, we just charge, we just charge the students. Mm-hmm. Um, and these days, the rate for the event is 140 Canadian. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so they get a fair amount of, of experience for, for that price. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you've got the rehearsal, the performance. Yeah, and a, and a rehearsal at the sound check prior to the yeah. performance. Yeah. They also get pictures and video for that price. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, like I say, I've been not, I mean, I think people could charge a lot more than I'm charging and, and still have a lot more, a lot of success at it. These days I do make money. I make about the same as I pay the musicians. Right. And I'm just fine with that. Yeah. But I could understand for, you know, depending on how you work out uh, where your money is coming from, that some people might want to make more. And mm-hmm. I think you absolutely could. Mm-hmm. Uh, depends on the market. I remember I, I used to charge 25 pounds. <laughs> What's that? I used to charge 25 pounds. And then the rehearsal, and yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that's great. Then I you're. Very, I had a very nice keyboard player who didn't want to charge a huge amount. Mm. But yes, I mean, we didn't charge my. I mean, I think I. I'm pretty sure I was in the similar ballpark. I remember charging like forty to fifty dollars in the mm-hmm. beginning. Maybe that's in my head, but it was so inexpensive that in those days we used to say, "Okay, at eight p.m." On Sunday, that's when sign-up starts, and the first 20 people who sign up, who, who send me an email at 8 p.m., are in. And I would literally be saying, okay, I got these people, <laughs> and then by 8.01, it was full. Right. That's when you know something's too cheap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, it was, I didn't have to pay for the venue. I just remembered, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if you're lucky enough to find those kinds of situations, they, they do exist. I mean, there's still some venues, there's fewer and fewer of them in Toronto because rent has skyrocketed. So I don't pay for our venue, but I pay for the sound guy. Mm-hmm. So it yeah, cost us 250. Yeah. I paid for the sound guy. I always managed to cover my costs, uh, but not really my time or yeah, probably wasn't but then I, I stopped doing it um, because, you know, my direction of teaching changed. But mm-hmm. it definitely was something which I noticed my students really enjoyed and it motivated them and they got excited and they felt like there was something to work towards. Um, yeah. And also, also I would find that afterwards it was kind of like they upped another level when they came back to having lessons. Yep. Um, and then the other thing that happened was that they would, as you said, meet other people. And I had quite a few who got together and did sort of events together. And 
supported each other at gigs and did songwriting and that. So it is a wonderful way to build a community. I have one more question if you've got time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, You talked about non-practising students. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? And uh, how is it that what, what maintains your motivation working with people for 10 years that don't practice? <laughs> well, this is why I love teaching singing and could never, ever teach another instrument. Singing, wherever people are at, you can always work with them in the moment. You're working them out. It's, it's, like, it's more like being a personal trainer in that sense where no matter what, people are going to benefit from the work that we're doing in that half hour or in that hour. And so I enjoy that. And I've learned to let go to an extent (laughs) of my own need for them to be successful. Because to us, you know, at the end of the day, and and I don't mean to, I hope this doesn't offend anybody because I don't mean it the wrong way. But it, it comes from ego, our need to have our students, right? I mean, to a certain extent, uh, obviously, we're genuinely wanting to help them. And if they want to achieve a certain level of success, then we, we are desperate to help them achieve that. But really, what more is our job than offering our support and our information within that time that somebody pays for? On a very basic level, that's what I consider my job to be. So... I don't think I could have a hundred percent of students in that category and, and want to get up the next day. But when somebody comes in, you know, and there's kind of glacially improving because they don't do any homework. I just remind myself if, if ever that frustration creeps in that, you know, people are doing this for different reasons. And I think most people who achieve the level where they can teach they tend to fall into the category of very ambitious with their voice and they work extremely hard at it. Hard at it. They're ex- very motivated to uh, build their skills, but there are people who that's not why they take lessons and why, why should we cut them off from a, a great source of joy and, and, and support because we want them or we know what they could be, you know, it, it, I've, I've learned to let go of that over time. And it is something that comes with time, I think. And it's not for everybody. I mean, I know, I think we've had discussions about that too, I think, where just so, for some people that it'd be so frustrating to, to watch that happen. But uh, I, I can rationalize it in my mind, I guess, and, and it's fine. Uh, and and it, it is true that, I mean, there are people who said to me, this is my half hour a week. The rest of the week, I'm dealing with my kids and my job, and I love coming here and singing through some some exercises and doing a song with you. I love it. It's my favorite part of the week. So who am I to say to that person, well, you know, if you're not practicing 20 minutes a day, you know, forget it. Like, it, it's okay. <laughs> but it, uh, having said that, it would be nicer if more people worked harder, you know, of course. I mean, I think to a certain extent, it, at least my business model, there are aspects that are similar to a professional gym, you know, where how many people are actually paying the monthly fee for the gym versus how many people show up? I mean, uh, they don't want to tell us those numbers, you know. 
And when it comes to practicing, I, I would, wouldn't mind if there was a higher percentage of people working as hard as it is uh, at it as I'd like them to. But, um, you know, that's not for me to decide. Yeah. And I, I agree with you on that point of the fact that you just don't know why that person's coming to you. And I remember years ago, um, being a little frustrated because it was in the early days when I, I, funnily enough, I didn't realize what a good student I was until I became a teacher. Yes. And that thing yeah. that you were talking about that quite often teachers are already driven anyway, which is how they get into that level. But, um, there, yeah, this student just wasn't really doing much practice. And then, and I kept trying to encourage it. Um, and then one day she came in and um, something had changed and she said, oh, yes, well, I've, I've stopped my antidepressant medications. And I went, oh, okay, yeah, I didn't realise that you were on that. And she said, yeah, well, the whole reason that I came to you was because I was depressed and I was trying to figure out what could I do to break this cycle. I've always wanted to sing. And, and I thought, well, I'll have singing lessons. And so that was what kind of got me through that very difficult early period before the medication started to work and now I'm off them and da-da-da-da. And she continued and she's now actually become a friend. But suddenly in my mind I was like, oh, oh, people are coming to singing lessons for very different reasons than I, I think that they're coming. And it was yeah. kind, of, kind of humbling experience because... I realised that all my expectations were unrealistic and unnecessary, you know, in her circumstance. Well, it's, um, you know, stories like that are, are really why I teach, you know, why, why I still love to do this after so many years and so many hours a week and going through burnout with how hard I work and stuff like that. And um, there's another story um, this one doesn't necessarily have a happy ending other than the fact that, um, she, the lady who told me this story was singing, but we were talking earlier about just to bring it back about people who were told at a very young age, they shouldn't sing. So I was giving a workshop and we were talking about this issue and how many people were held back by something that somebody told them decades prior. So this lady put up her hand and she said, you know, I, I wouldn't even sing to my father on his deathbed because when I was younger, he would tell me that my voice wasn't very good. And, uh, but he would never say that to my sister. So I was there with my sister and she would sing to him when he was dying. And I, I wanted to open my mouth and sing for him so much to express that love for him. And uh, I couldn't. But the happy ending is that there she was singing in choir and at a, at a vocal workshop. So, um, but, you know, it, it doesn't get much worse than that story, yeah. I think, of how limiting uh, things that we've been told. And, and as teachers, to look beyond whether you're spiritual or not, we have a role in our communities that is quite unique, where we, we can be the right kind of therapy for somebody at the right time. Mm. And um, it's so important for us not to forget that. Mm. And it's, we get caught up in the tangibles or, you know, of what we do. And cause we, we, yeah, we genuinely really want our singers to succeed and reach their potential. But at the end of the day, it, all that stuff is fleeting anyway. Yeah. And what really matters is, is how you can make a positive impact on someone's life. 
What a way, great way to end the podcast and, and our chat. Thank you so much for your time, Ryan. Oh, I'm so happy to do that. I just, just felt like we were just shooting the shit. So. Yeah, well, like we usually do. We don't do that enough. So, so thanks very much. We'll see you again. Uh, thank you. Okay, have a great day. Talk soon. Take care. Doo-doo.